Is overpopulation hurting the planet? Today I talk with Pierre de Rocher and Joanna Schurmack. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guests are Pierre Desrochers and Joanna Schurmack. Pierre is an associate professor of geography at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. His main research interests are economic development, technical innovation, business environment interface, and energy policy and food policy. Joanna is a doctoral student at York University's Department of Science and Technology Studies. She is also a research services librarian at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, where she works with the psychology and anthropology departments and the robotics program. They've worked on a lot of projects together, but one of their books in particular that will inform a lot of our discussion today is Population Bombed, which they say destroys the link between overpopulation and climate change. Pierre and Joanna, welcome to the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So Joanna, Pierre... In each episode, we start with a question and go wherever the discussion leads us. So I'll throw it right over to you guys. Is overpopulation hurting the planet? No, it isn't. But it is very counterintuitive. And uh, unfortunately, well, let me rephrase that. Every generation for the last 200 years, you've had a number of intellectuals, policymakers, and just a members of the general public who have really worried about uh, humanity's increasing numbers. And every generation, it turns out that the pessimists are wrong, that in a market economy, at least, uh, this isn't true necessarily for communist economies, but in market economies, it turns out that people are not just mouths to feed, but they're also hands to works and uh, brains to take up of new solutions. But despite 200 years of evidence to the contrary, a lot of people view overpopulation as a major problem. Well, and I think it has to do with the fact that um, what we see here and what we actually documented in the book is a clash between two major intellectual discourses or perspectives. So Pierre already talked about um, the perspective of the pessimists or the Malthusians with their particular assumptions. So um, this, this idea that population, especially higher population or overpopulation, is utterly destroying the planet is one of the key um, arguments in the pessimist Malthusian or neo-Malthusian discourse. Um, and one of the underlying assumptions there is the fact that people behave essentially like any other biological agent, be it bacteria, cattle, or any other creature that will um, breed or populate whatever area it's in, using up um, all of the natural resources. And at that point, once it's used up whatever is available, it'll have a huge population crash. <laughs> That's it. Um, population, essentially, it, it's what Paul Ehrlich describes in the Population Bomb, the 1968 book, after which our book is named, well, in, in, in the debunking of, with, uh, our book is, is named. Uh, so the population crash would essentially be what everybody is expecting. So a growing population is supposed to result in that. Now, the other discourse, the optimist or, um, I guess, uh, Cornucopia, and there are other names, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what's... Uh, what, Techno-optimist. Yes, okay. Yeah, that's, that's another good name for that. So the other discourse um, looks at people as um, uh, not just consumers and, and, let's say, users of resources, but in fact, producers. And what, what Pierre just told you uh, is that with uh, um, one of the views there is that with every 
with every mouth comes a brain and a pair of hands. So that is uh, that translates into creating, creating resources. And there is a, a fantastic quote that we use in our book towards the end of um, our book from Ted Nordhaus, actually, from an essay that he published in 2018, where he said that um, this this whole idea of uh, carrying capacity and, and fixed limits uh, really doesn't exist when you consider people as these agents of, of productivity. Nordhaus mm-hmm. says it took six times as much farmland to feed a single person 9,000 years ago at the dawn of the Neolithic age um, than it does today. So does carrying capacity matter? Well, it depends again on which perspective you're using. So you mentioned on the one side of the debate, we have pessimists and optimists. So is it fair to say that the optimists essentially view uh, progress when it comes to technology and especially the, the growth of the uh, population as a as a good thing? It's something that the earth can handle and that the pessimists basically say the earth can't handle this. At some point, we'll end up at, at a level where there is overpopulation, there's a finite set of space, etc. Is that too much of a simplification or is that pretty much the divide? No, it's not. No, what, what you need to understand is that historically, uh, technological optimists came into variety. Uh, you had the market optimists who believe that people look for uh, increased profitability, they respond to price signals, and so if something is missing, then the price of a resource will go out, it will go up, so people will look for more of it, they will use it more efficiently, and they will develop substitutes. And so you could call them the market or the, the free market optimist, but they, since they honestly believed in technological change, uh, but also historically communist, traditional Marxists also believed in technological progress and did not believe in carrying capacity, but their favorite approach was obviously central planning. But it is true that whether uh, they were Marxists or whether they were free market economists, uh, optimists recognize that w- one thing that sets humanity apart from other animal species is our capacity to invent new things. And because we invent new things by combining existing technologies in new ways, uh, there is virtually no limit to uh, the amount of new technologies that we can create. Uh, the problem, of course, turned out to be in communist economy, that central planning for for incentive issues, for the knowledge problem, which your uh, podcast title refers to. Obviously, uh, technological uh, innovation came to a halt in centrally planned economies, whereas uh, the pessimists, and they're often biologists, uh, are unwilling to acknowledge that humans differ from other animal species in this respect. So, for example, uh, beavers will combine uh, mud and logs uh, to create dams, but that's that's all they combine, really. You know, uh, termites uh, will combine uh, dust with their salivas to create structure or other things, but that's pretty much all that they recombine. But huma- the reason why humanity ended up at the top of the food chain was because of our capacity to create uh, new technology. But what overpopulation um, theorists will tell you is that, yeah, okay, maybe it was true in the past, but it is too risky and we cannot uh, be too optimistic that way. So controlling population numbers is actually a more rational thing to do than hope that, you know, Technological change will fall from uh, like manna from heaven. And absolutely, let's let's say that the climate crisis of today is not the first by any means 
um, of the scenarios that pessimists have invoked overpopulation uh, to or, or in, in order to control. Uh, we can go back to, uh, well, even, even uh, in at the beginning of the last century, the erosion problem, then it was global cooling, then it was global warming. Now, of course, it's climate uh, crisis slash chaos. Uh, before that, when Malthus started out, um, he was he was simply um, trying to, in, in, in the simplest, let's say, the most simplified version of his, um, of his views, trying to say that human population can grow exponentially, whereas um, the foodstuffs available to people uh, appear to grow geometrically. Now, the interesting thing is, as Pierre mentioned uh, from the from the uh, Marxist uh, or early Marxist writings, Engels responded to that by saying, no, wait a minute, uh, ideas grow geometrically too. Hence, they will always overtake this uh, apparent depletion of uh, material goods by increasing the capacity to produce more, again, um, exponentially. So the, the pessimist thinkers, if you talk to them, probably would say that they do understand economic growth and innovation, and they do understand technological progress, but ultimately it won't help uh, the population problem. So in your views, do you think they actually truly understand technological innovation and human progress uh, and how it uh, helps with the population issue and, and, and uh, population growth? Or, or are they essentially just saying, yeah, we understand that and putting it aside, but but they but they really don't. No, they don't. And uh, I don't want to go too technical here, but the issue is whether or not you believe in increasing returns to scale. So well, let's go. Standard... Let's go into it a bit, though, for sure. OK, so well, uh, so Maltus is usually described as uh, Joanna was saying to have said that, you know, food production will never be able to keep up uh, with people. But beginning with later edition of his book, what he his key argument really became the notion that, well, you know, whether it's we're talking about mineral resources or the land to grow food, uh, humans will always uh, skim the cream first. And so as to try to produce more food and you bring under cultivation land of lesser quality, or as you try to produce coal and uh, you begin to exploit deposits that are less concentrated or of uh, lesser values than the original one, uh, you won't be able to keep up the amount of uh, output that you need to feed uh, or to uh, clothe or to provide the infrastructure. Uh, for a growing population. And so while they believe in a certain level of technological change, the argument is always either that uh, we will not be able to maintain, you know, the past really does not provide a valuable guide to the future because in the past, well, people had better lands to cultivate or they had better deposit to exploit. And so as you move down the, let's say, the quality ladder of the resources that you have, you'll have to spend more money and you will cause more environmental damage. And so because of the nature of these inputs, uh, technological change won't be able to keep up. Whereas people who were critical of that said, no, no, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, we'll always be able, even if we bring lesser land uh, under cultivation, we will develop better seeds, we'll have better fertilizers, we can irrigate the soil, we can uh, concentrate certain types of production in certain regions. And I would uh, say that, and Joanna might contradict me on this, uh, the pessimists will of, often pay lip service to technological change, but then they will always say, well, you know, but we cannot use the past as a useful guideline or way to think about the future because now things are different. 
Well, actually, not so much contradiction. I want you to help me with this because I'm going to be um, going into something that we didn't really, uh, well, we, we did address it in the book, but not exactly the way that Alex has posed as a question. Uh, now, the thing is, um, Alex, that um, I think the type of technological change and the technological outcomes that we are producing um, as uh, through the development process that is the problem. So it's not just that there are, is technological change or that we have certain kinds of technologies. You see that a lot of the um, a lot of the technological um, let's say outputs or products that we have have been classified by uh, various generations of uh, environmental and sustainability thinkers as undesirable because of either uh, the byproducts or the actual output. So over the years, uh, people like uh, Bill Rees and others have come up with um, um, not, not uh, just theoretical constructs, but entire models for trying to express how using technology uh, um, provides or creates so much uh, quote-unquote waste and uses so many more resources than than less technologically um, uh, dependent methods that that in itself is a liability. So I think that rather than just saying do pessimists believe or not believe in technologies is that pessimists consider a lot of the methods to be fundamentally flawed and um, in fact uh, creating more of a problem than a solution. So technological solutions to them are just more of the same, because if you look at what people like um, Rees and others are, are saying um, about the technological lifestyle is that it the inputs and the CO2 outputs that it generates are just not worth it and they're not acceptable. Um, another example is nuclear technology. Um, for all of those um, who would who would like to see um, fossil uh, fossil fuel-based technologies being replaced by something that's carbon neutral, um, the nuclear option is absolutely obvious. Everybody says, well, of course it doesn't. Yes, there are high startup costs as there are, of course, to solar and to wind, but um, then that's a fairly uh, long-term stable solution and, and it's, it's carbon neutral. Neutral. Why aren't we doing that? Well, it's it's seen again as something that will that has bad um, long term um, ecological um, or a risk yes, consideration. Yes, exactly, exactly. Plus, it doesn't sell well because again, it's it, it's uh, leave it allows us to live beyond our means, and it gets back to uh, those. Uh, uh, frameworks that we discuss in one of our chapters, where in fact a lot of the frameworks assumptions are that technology is bad because it impinges upon uh, the land in ways that we would not impinge uh, without the technology. So in in a sense, it's and a bit I, of a tautological uh, argument. Yeah. yeah, and what I would argue, I guess, one of the problems that we have with those people is that it, basically, if I was to summarize their take on things, if it's not renewable, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead of other questions you might have here, but uh, there is this assumption that technology is only good to the extent that it deals with uh, renewable resources. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I think ultimately our take and uh, what we explain in the book is that 
the humanity's track record as far as technological change goes is actually pretty good. No technology is perfect, but we tend to create lesser problems than those that existed over time. And if this is your criteria, then, you know, I think humanity has done well. But a lot of the pessimists believe in something called the precautionary principle. And basically what they say is that we shouldn't go ahead in the absence of absolute certainty that we won't make things worse. But then, you know, you could make the case, well, our ancestors should have never domesticated fire in the first place but maybe i'm getting ahead of myself i should no i i think i think we'll actually get there so it's not it's not too far ahead i sort of want to wrap up the point about the pessimists so they are obviously concerned about um the planet being hurt by too much population too many people yes and people consuming too many resources so basically their assumption is that it's not only the more of us there are because populations are plateauing at the moment but they're increasingly worried about increased standards of living Mm -hmm. so lifting people out of poverty they argue might seem like you know the charitable thing to do but if uh, we consider all the damage that this supposedly inflicts on the planet uh, you know, from CO2 emission, from greenhouse gas emissions to increased resource consumption, uh, then this is actually not something that is uh, desirable or even sustainable in the long run. And this is where we strongly disagree with them. But. Well, yes. And of course, there is an underlying misanthropic assumption there in the pessimist uh, perspective in that, um, as as uh, many uh, have summarized, I, I have a quote from um, Nordhaus about that that um, I've uh, previously gone into, but he also says, well, the assumption is that that humans are greedy and selfish. <laughs> really? I mean, I think when when um, we have seen over the centuries that when people are relatively free to innovate, and again, there is they, they, there is uh, private property, there is a motive to innovate because they'll be rewarded, right? So there are incentives on many levels. People are are in immensely creative and Im- immensely positive. So this idea that humans are just at base level greedy and selfish is so incredibly pervasive that it it has it has led to people like Garrett Hardin, you know, the the the, uh, the patron saint of um, so many sustainability scholars, uh, to be a super strong uh, proponent. Well, he's dead now, but he was he was an extremely strong proponent of uh, population control, essentially by any means necessary, including um, not helping people in poorer countries because, well, what will they do? They'll just come and eat your resources. So why do you need more of them? I mean, this, this, uh, some of the um, philosophical assumptions are, are, are so, uh, so troubling and so anti-human that. Um, There's a reason why we wrote the book. And mm-hmm. what, uh, if I may supplement what Joanna was saying here is that uh, what a lot of pessimists don't understand is that the profit motive through the processes that I've described earlier is sort of guiding humanity through the, an invisible end process to create more wealth while simultaneously reducing our environmental impact. And one thing that, again, the pessimists don't understand is that what has really allowed us to do that ultimately is that we've replaced resources that used to be harvested from the surface of the planets, you know, a whale for their oil, uh, let's say we would grow uh, linseed or cotton or producing food rather inefficiently. We've replaced a lot of that by resources that we've extracted from below the ground. So uh, minerals, but primarily, you know, things like, well, uh, fossil fuels, so coal, uh, natural gas, uh, petroleum. 
petroleum. Uh, you look at our world today, we're, we're born, we're surrounded by plastic, we live, we're surrounded by plastic, we die, uh, we uh, are surrounded by plastic. We might view that as a bad thing, but again, consider what plastic replaced. You know, woods, ivory, glass, uh, tin, uh, lead maybe, you know, lead pipes, what have you. Uh, and so this is one thing that the sort of, would you call it emotional revulsion? Yeah, well, because it is. By yeah, pessimists. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what I think their main blinder in terms of understanding how humanity can both increase its number, improve its standards of living mm -hmm. while reducing its environmental impact. Again, replacing things that used to be produced on the surface of the planets by things that came from below the ground. Well, yes, and you're absolutely right to call it an emotional, re emotional revulsion. There is both a revulsion against people um, let's say having more people, uh, but why is it so strong? Because they'll be consuming these things. Now, if we if we truly look at what uh, the fossil fuel revolution and what human ingenuity has brought us um, forth from these uh, fossil fuels, we can see that, yes, in fact, we have lightened the burden on a lot of animal species and in developing economies, um, land is rewilding. Um, and some species are rebounding. Um, actually, recently, um, the um, science journalist, scientist, and um, a peer, British peer, uh, Matt Ridley, um, had had a, had a really interesting interview in which he said that not only is the earth greening as a result of the increased carbon dioxide concentration, which is sometimes mentioned, but not very widely. But that's a fantastic thing. There is a plants that actually evolved in an atmosphere that had higher CO2 levels than today's atmosphere. So plants are becoming more efficient. But what really added is that we're actually adding species. Yes, there are definitely species that are declining and some may be on the brink of extinction. In fact, we know of several. But first of all, they're are huge numbers of species that have not been documented. And of the ones we know and can count in various environments, we're actually getting new ones. He mentioned a number of um, birds, uh, some of them urban, semi-urban and suburban birds that have been added to the count of species. There is a kind of sparrow that's been added. And he said, why aren't we rejoicing at the fact that now we have one more sparrow, at least in, in British urban environments and several other birds in these liminal environments that overlap urban and um, countryside environments? Why? Well, it's because these are not what we see as flagship species of nature. Um, so many, uh, so many um, environmentalists and sustainability activists, their discourse is about just the wild species. But no, we are actually allowing and shepherding many other species to thrive in, in mixed or urban environments. And there are more species. So uh, again, this is, this is the unsung um, side benefit of a lot of what we've been doing. Um, we've been making the earth more, um, how shall we put it, in many places, wilder, more hospitable, and just... Uh, but also more yeah. diverse. Yes. You yes. know, human intervention, you know, we brought species to places, places like New Zealand. They might have lost two or three, but New Zealand mm -hmm. now has much more uh, much more diverse flora and fauna than the yeah. past. You build a road in the wood, well, you create a zone in which flowers would grow that they wouldn't grow otherwise. So, uh, so I guess what we're trying to say is that, yes, there's more of us. We're wealthier. We're having an impact on the planet. 
but it's not the sort of you know bulldoze paved over gray conta soil contamination yeah. landscape that a lot of the pessimists were predicting. It doesn't fit that narrative. The problem is that a lot of the pessimists also have um, they they use a lot of motivated reasoning to maintain us in this state of horror and moral revulsion. But the truth is, um, nothing nothing's as 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 black and white. Nothing's as um, extreme as as what uh, they're offering us and what they're not willing to see and this this is one thing uh, where they're completely inconsistent about is they want they want the earth uh, to be saved uh, as a certain vision of the earth as was let's say sold by David Attenborough in his 1995 series or something like that this particular pristine kind of earth but it's changing the earth is incredibly dynamic it changed before humans became one of the dominant species. There were mass um, uh, efflorescences of life and mass extinctions many times before people. And to to have the audacity to think that the Earth circa 2019 is the only Earth that's worth preserving in, given the biases of the people who see it that way is 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 absolutely uh, it's just it's even inconsistent with their own biases why fix the earth into some kind of an anthropocentric bias I, apparently the people who advocate that don't understand that they're applying their own bias to that i don't want to simplify everything you guys just said too much but it, but it sounds to me that what i'm pulling out of this is in your views the the pessimists although of course they they are right to observe the costs that technology or progress would have they they uh, they downplay the benefits and what what else it can do that is to say they might exaggerate the costs and focus too much on those but but they're not willing to acknowledge the benefits and they often misdiagnose their problem, you know, because for them, everything ultimately is about overpopulation and about new technology. But if you look at uh, places where species are really threatened, well, it's often in poor economies. You know, if you cannot go buy your food at the grocery store, well, you know, you're going to go kill some apes or, you know, poach whatever is available on the land or else. Uh, if you don't uh, fish farm, if you don't have uh, fishes produced in uh well, in fish ponds, well, you go out in the open sea and then the problem is, you know, the open and the tragedy of open mm -hmm. access. It's not necessarily because people are wealthier. But what you see, for example, is that in the last few decades, uh, the percentage of the fishes and uh, seafood generally that we find in our supermarket is now coming predominantly from, let's call them farmed environments, you know, ponds or, you know, big nets that you move around in the ocean for certain variety of tunas. Uh, you see that um, the forest cover in the United States, for example, has been expanding for a century. Well, what has happened between that? Well, uh, in 1920, in the U.S., we had roughly 100 million people. Today, you've got well over uh, 300 million. Uh, almost everyone above the age of 16 in the United States today has a car. That was not the case in the 1920s. But what has happened is that we produce so much more food uh, on uh, a reduced amount of land than in the past that a lot of uh, marginal agricultural lands all over North America have been abandoned. You know, uh, a lot of land, for example, that was devoted to, to tobacco production in the United States has reverted back to forest. Uh, much of Appalachia today is, uh, is forested, but when you still have uh, people who were practicing a quasi-subsistence farming lifestyle over a century ago, well, uh, they were uh, producing, they were keeping livestock or they were trying to grow spinach or whatever you could hope to grow in Appalachia. But today, a lot of people have 
left the countryside, they've moved to the city. We produce something like, what, five, six, seven times more corn on the same piece of land, on the best land than we did a century ago. So uh, people just abandon uh, marginal uh, land. And as a result, yes, you have a lot more people in North America. You have a lot more cars. Uh, we have a lot more stuff than we did a century ago. And yet we also have a lot more forest cover. I mean, even in a jurisdiction like Ontario, we're actually losing more uh, farmland uh, to the forest than we are losing to suburban sprawl. Mm -hmm. Now, granted, people will say, well, you know, we're losing marginal land uh, where the Canadian shield is or whatever. That's true. But still, overall, uh, I believe that on uh, on that balance, more people, more wealth, uh, actually, find, uh, we, we found ways to lighten the burden of humans on the landscape. Yes, yes, and even use some of these lands that are rewilding or reverting back to nature as uh, for ecotourism and some of the, let's say, more and more marginal farming areas and for some agritourism. So, uh, yeah, it's overall uh, the use of land is more diversified. Species are being created, species are coming back. And yeah, definitely. The, I think the, um, there is a not just an exaggeration by the pessimists, but also a certain distortion. And that's also- They want important. things to be bad, you know, it's- uh, Yeah, they do. <laughs> they, they want things to be bad so that um, I think it justifies not just uh, the, um, the discourse's out, uh, outlook, but uh, certain of the prescriptions that, um, that come with it. And it's also, uh, again, I don't want to assume too much in terms of people's motive, but uh, I think a lot of the problem with the pessimists is that if they don't see someone in charge, they don't believe that good things can happen. Mm -hmm. You know, if you leave it uh, to uh, markets, to uh, the price system, to people spontaneously innovating with other grand master plans, um, somehow I think it just doesn't compute with mm -hmm. the number of people. Mm -hmm. But again, it's it's difficult to really speculate what drives people. Although there is there is certainly, as as some have suggested, um, including um, let's see. Who wrote about the Iron Triangle there? No, uh, oh, yes, Bailey. Bailey that's yeah. right. Uh, people like Ron Bailey have suggested, well, there are monetary reasons behind some of, um, behind, in fact, a lot of uh, these these views. Well, uh, there's a lot of evidence also in, in the land of scholarly publication that there are other mm -hmm. reasons, prestige, grant money, uh, and rampant publication biases that dictate certain views um, getting a lot more exposure and uh, getting published more than others. But yeah, overall... Um, but you also have the uh, mm -hmm. old joke about, you know, what's an environmentalist? Well, it's yeah. the first one that built a cabin by the lake, you know, mm -hmm. it just doesn't mm -hmm. want anybody yes, else to exactly. go there. Yes, exactly. Well, exactly. And doesn't want anybody else to go there. So, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. you look at uh, Dan Turner. I mean, I guess our younger listeners won't be familiar with him, but he's one of those billionaire created CNN was mm -hmm. all over, gave a lot of money to uh, population control activities. And his philosophy is basically is very simple. You know, we have an environmental problem because we have too many people who have too much stuff. But at one point in time, he was the biggest uh, private landowner in the United States. And he was, you know, uh, buying land and he was trying to uh, bring back uh, the bison population. But, uh, yeah, he just basically did not want too many people on this property, I think, or well, didn't want too many, many neighbors. Many pessimists, uh, many of the British pessimists, if they were not outright patricians um, or uh, uh, lords and other uh, hereditary nobility, they certainly held similar views. Now, also another thing, since, since we're trying to wrap up the, uh, this um, uh, pessimist discourse overview, is that um, one thing that Pierre and I uh, try to make clear in the book is that 
the two narratives or the two discourses, the optimist and pessimist, do not really overlap uh, political distinctions such as left and right. Um, if you look at people who have written on, on both sides, you'll see that there are as many Marxists as there are uh, social conservatives um, on the pessimist, on the op, uh, optimist and pessimist sides. There are, there are really... Uh, you'll find figures from the church on the pro-population and figures from the church on the anti-population or pessimist side. I mean, people like Giovanni Botero um, were among the first uh, pessimists or Malthusians. Uh, but you've, you've had others writing on the other side. So again, the two discourses really um, straddle um, both political and, and religious divides. So you, you can't really say that those kinds of um, divisions um, are reproduced in uh, in these discourses. And interestingly, also, um, uh, through our research, we've discovered that um, those who uh, are uh, strong proponents of uh, anthropogenic climate change can also be found on both sides. So it's not just those who uh, are uh, proponents of, of climate change that are uh, outright pessimists. Um, we found one um, astro astrophysicist and astrobiologist, uh, Adam Frank, who's absolutely a technological optimist uh, to, a, to a, a really large degree, while at the same time believing that we are radically changing the, the climate and that we're affecting the Earth. And, and we'll probably come back to that. This is actually, I think, a great time to take a quick break. So we'll be back in a sec. I'm speaking here with Pierre and Joanna on Is Overpopulation Hurting the Planet? The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Vincent Geloso, and Danny Leroy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Curious Task ILS, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking with Pierre and Joanna today. Uh, before the break, guys, we, we talked about a lot, um, but but what we did, I think, was was uh, create a, a great overview for anyone listening about really what what the pessimist side of the the equation is when it comes to a population of the planet. Uh, we were discussing the pessimist and optimist dichotomy, and we really went into what the pessimists think, what's driving them. We touched on a lot, but but of course, one thread that kept coming up that that we didn't really dive too much into was that. Ultimately, no matter where a pessimist is coming from, they view the population as sort of a problem in general. But putting aside global warming for a sec or, or climate change or whatever we want to talk about on that end of the discussion, but it always seems to come back to the fact that more humans means more problems. Yeah, no, I, I think we today we have a somewhat distorted vision of how the modern environmental movement rose in the United States and Western Europe. You know, if you read about what happened there, well, you see people were worried about pesticides, uh, river catching on fires, and, uh, you know, DDT, things like that. But really, what I would argue is that it was ultimately population-driven. And, and my reading of this, and that's the case I make in the book, and I think it's a fairly defensible one, is that 
Uh, before the Second World War, you had a strong eugenics movement in uh, all advanced economies. And for people who are not familiar with eugenics, the idea was that, well, if we can breed horses to have better horses, why can't we breed humans to have better humans? I know the poor, the stupid, the, the deficient people are multiplying too fast. And so, uh, but of course, the ultimate conclusion of that was, you know, an experiment in applied eugenic was Auschwitz and uh, Bergen-Belsen and other concentration camps in East in Germany and Eastern Europe. And so what happens at the end of the Second World War is that you've got all these people who've invested their lives in eugenics, they have their organizations, but somehow the Nazi experiment has made them very unpalatable. And what happens is that a few of them then see the rise of DDT, see the rise of other ways of dealing with tropical diseases, and they reinvent themselves as those population catastrophists. They're like, well, what's the point of going on a tropical island, uh, you know, saving the lives of uh, people in the short run when because of their mom, because they will eventually run out of resources, they will eventually uh, die of famine. Uh, so uh, a good example is Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley wrote um, famously that why should we um, glorify the fact that, let's say, 20,000 lives were uh, gained by spraying DDT and killing um, the malaria mosquito if those 20,000 people will then go on to have 100,000 people of, uh, in the next generation and all of them will painfully and slowly starve to death. And another person who um, advocated uh, very strongly for uh, both population control and a complete cutting off of aid um, to developing nations um, was Garrett Hardin. Um, he, he's venerated for, um, of course, the tragedy of the commons. But what, what people don't realize very often that that was one of many articles in a series of his culminating in his lifeboat ethics article um, of uh, 1974, in which um, he uh, used this metaphor of every nation um, being, um, every uh, well-developed or every rich nation uh, being essentially a, a boat uh, and the population being contained within it. And then the poorer nations who are struggling to keep up and who are struggling to feed their uh, burgeoning population are swimmers in the ocean. And what these swimmers are trying to do is they're trying to get into the lifeboats so that the uh, quote unquote uh, uh, rich nations can take on these extra uh, travelers and uh, save them from from drowning. Well, um, Hardin's argument was, oh, why take them on? Why accept them on the lifeboats? Uh, we can't. We we can only take care of our own people. Get rid of them. And so, what happened? You could say, well, that's an intellectual argument. But what happened is that. There, there were very real policy consequences to that in the 60s and the 70s. So uh, some people might be familiar with uh, the Chinese uh, one-child population, which was sort of a policy, sorry, which was uh, abolished a few, uh, two or three years ago. Uh, but some people don't realize that when... Um, India experienced food shortage in the 60s. The Lyndon Johnson administration insisted that they practice population control uh, or that they implement uh, sterilization policies. And, and this was forced sterilization. And this was forced sterilization. So, of course, what happened in the context of a society like India is that it was all the untouchables or, you know, people at the bottom order of the caste system that were uh, forcibly sterilized. And, uh, you know, millions of people went through that. Um, 
And there was a lot of human suffering associated with uh, population control in the 60s and 70s. It was not just an intellectual exercise. And that's why eventually those policies became unpalatable as they became better known. And this is why uh, for, I would argue, from the 1990s to maybe, I don't know, 2007, 8, 9, population control was not something that you would discuss in polite company. But then it was sort of revived within the context of climate change policy. But I don't know if you want to add something else uh, before we jump into that. Well, I mean, in terms of real life um, outcomes uh, that were created by uh, by these uh, forced uh, sterilizations uh, on, on huge, huge masses of, of people, uh, we had mass infanticide um, and gender imbalances in countries uh, like China and India. Um, that are fairly significant right now. So yeah, it's mass suffering that keeps on being perpetuated over many generations. And what you guys were saying is that the uh, proponents of population control, they, they aren't just talking about population control in and of itself. They often come, uh, the backdrop to their thought process is that the the planet or, or that area or whatever maybe can't handle the population. Is that, That's often the reasoning that's given? Well, and the, the thing is that if you believe that uh, too many people are ultimately a problem, then you have no choice but to adapt drastic and authoritarian policies. You cannot just wait for people to become wealthier and have uh, less children. I mean, that that's that's another issue that uh, the pessimists never really believe in. You know, what you observe historically is that in poor societies, people tend to have more children. Why? Well, because they don't have pension funds. So you hope that if you have 10 children, a few will survive and perhaps one will turn out to be a good kid and will take care of you. But also when you practice subsistence agriculture, uh, kids uh, are a good return on, on investment fairly quickly. You know, they can pick up weeds, they can keep the livestock, whatever you. Uh, as societies develop, children become much more of a financial burden. And, you know, especially these days, you've got to pay for them until their mid to late 20s or what have you. So there is a strong incentive to have less children. But you see, the pessimists never really uh, buy into that or believe that it will never be fast enough or uh, sufficient, uh, sufficiently scalable. To... And, and I think the other aspect there is that they don't want to make it um, uh, dependent on uh, the person, so they don't want it to. They don't want to leave it to people as a matter of choice or as a matter of um, all this uh, economic imperative. They want to make it a political imperative. They want to. In, in fact, they want to coerce people yeah. into that. So it it becomes um, population control at that scale uh, is a matter of of mass coercion. Yeah, and what's interesting about China is that you know historically they were uh, standard, they were old-fashioned Marxists, and Mao, for example, did not believe in overpopulation. Mm -hmm. He came from a classical background, but obviously by the 60s you have the Great Leap Forward, and they realized that mm -hmm. whatever they tried to do as Orthodox Marxists, nothing works. And then you know one uh, Chinese policymaker ran into the Club of Rome and limits to growth, and mm -hmm. brought that back to China, and they bought into this. So Cuba also did that eventually. They switched from the traditional technological optimist position when confronted by the unavoidable, you know, indubitable failure of their system, they switch to force population, uh, to coerce uh, population policies. And, and in fact, as, as the realities of the demographic transition are becoming more and more obvious, so as, as uh, uh, world leaders everywhere are starting to see that in most countries, not every country, I mean, for example, Kenya is definitely still growing, uh, but in many industrialized and industrializing countries, uh, the fertility, uh, the replacement rate, which is 2.1 uh, people, uh, children per woman, uh, has uh, already 
is has already been let's say um yeah well it's collapsed for some for some countries uh by decades so most countries in uh, europe have a uh fertility uh, a total fertility rate of uh, like 1.5 1.7 or so actually canada is around 1.67 or so so apparently it's actually on the higher end of uh, of uh, fertility rates for developed countries but uh, the the point is that as as this is happening and as uh, um fertility becomes below replacement in many countries including brazil um what uh, then uh, people who are uh, still advocating population control are saying, aha, but consumption. So these days, the activists that advocate population control always bring together the issue of consumption, the increased consumption and the increased waste that additional population will Yeah, and you know, produce. poor people want to have cars and eat steak. Yes, we can't let that happen. Absolutely, absolutely. So as it, as it becomes well known, that uh, the population growth rate will peak and will start declining. So that doesn't mean the total number of people, because that will keep on growing probably well until... Uh, well, for a few decades. Yeah. Well, yeah, for so till the end of this century, for sure. But as that happens, and why does that happen? Because the people who are in the pipeline, so to speak, so the people who are alive on Earth, tend to now live a lot longer than they used to, right? So everybody alive now has a much higher chance of making it past, let's say, 35 or 36, into their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, even in the developing countries. So there will the people alive now will be alive for a lot longer than people used to be historically. So even as fewer and fewer babies join, these people still alive are making this, this uh, large uh, um, chunk of humanity in the pipeline last for a whole lot longer, right? So that's... So so the concern right now is that what 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 we the people we have alive right now are going to stay alive for a long time and are going to consume. So so we we've discussed a lot about how the pessimists feel about all these issues. Uh, for the last sort of section of our conversation, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the optimists, and I'd like to start it with a challenge. It, it, Although, look, we've discussed the pessimist and optimist dichotomy, but is it someone may turn around to both of you and say, well, you may have a point about the pessimists, but is it possible that, that the, the optimists are too optimistic? Do they, we talked about sometimes that the, the pessimists will, will overestimate and over-exaggerate the problems with technological po- progress and ultimately population growth, but, but do, the, do the optimists put too much faith in that? Well, I would argue that it's actually the contrary. If nothing else, the optimists have been too cautious. I mean, if you look at the way we've slashed uh, world poverty in the last two decades, uh, granted, a lot of that comes is driven by China, but you know, China is one point whatever billion people, and India, the number of uh, people, the percentage of the world's population living in absolute poverty or in, let's say, dire poverty is lower than it's ever been. And these rates, the, the poverty rate came down a lot faster than even uh, most optimist people uh, had predicted. And basically, all you needed to do was to introduce uh, market reforms in places uh, like uh, China and India. So uh, if you read uh, Julian Simon, what he was saying is that the, the if you look at the historical trends, things tend to get better over time, but uh, geometrically to speak like Maltese, if nothing else, once, again, the more technology we have, the more we can invent. Uh, if we're able somehow to liberalize trade, if we allow people uh, to, you know, uh, adopt the latest technology, you know, a poor economy today that wants to catch up to the advanced economies as a uh, 
a lot easier, has a much easier access to technological change and much better technologies than was the case 30, 40 years ago. So raising humanity's living standard, paradoxically, is getting a lot easier as uh, we become wealthier and we have more technologies. So, no, I would argue that, if nothing else, the optimists have been too cautious. Absolutely. So two notes to that. I, I completely agree with that. Um, one good illustration of that is how many developing countries in Africa, for example, are skipping the step of having um, large infrastructures built, especially for telecommunications. Um, so with cell phones being ubiquitous, uh, these countries have saved a ton of time and um, energy and money um, by having to invest into into heavy metal wood infrastructure of electrical, oh, not so much electrifying, but copper, I guess, uh, yes, exactly, uh, definitely. Um, so, and copper is very expensive. So they've been able to save time and money and leapfrog through that step altogether. And that really helps with innovation and it helps with growth. Another good example was um, to come back to uh, um, the Matt Ridley article I mentioned earlier, how little um, thought went into the positive sides of, uh, let's say, some of the industrial outputs that people like Bill Rees like to decry as, as, as the horrors of, 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 technolo of the technological civilization. So CO2 output, well, creates a ton of greening around the world. Uh, it's, uh, there have been tremendous positive uh, outcomes, mm -hmm. and I think there are more to come. So, so if I if I'm clear on what you guys are saying, and and actually maybe I should back up and say a lot of people um, may listen to a discussion like this and think uh, ultimately what what you guys are trying to say is oh uh, you know population it's it's okay if it increases because there'll be technological progress uh, and some people might think that you guys are saying but but uh, the climate climate change and we're not going to get into that too much detail here we don't have enough time for that but but climate change pollution uh, harm to the earth that's not what you guys are concerned about. But if I'm listening to you correctly, what I'm hearing is that you're saying that it's it's market activity and it is in fact this technological progress that actually leads to treating the planet better. And I believe yes. that and I believe there was a there's a graph uh, in your book where it uh, on the one axis it had the time on the other axis uh, and I believe it was tracing basically pollution and it said that as technological progress starts there may be a, a spike or an increase in harm to the planet, but as it continues there's actually a decrease in harm to the planet. And I and I think that's what you guys are talking about right now. Let's yeah. look, for example, mm -hmm. at any advanced economies. So uh, we're podcasting this from Toronto. This is where we're based. So around 1900, you might have had maybe 500,000 people in the greater Toronto area. Uh, today, it's 10, uh, 10, uh, 10 times that. But at the same time, the hair quality in Toronto is mm -hmm. much better than it was then. Uh, we uh, don't have the public health problems that people had in the past. Well, what would you have seen if somehow you're able to travel back in time to 1900? Well, there are two things. There are other problems with two things. Uh, first of all, people are burning coal to uh, cook their food, to keep their houses warm, and it's a very polluting technology. You have a lot of particulates that come out of chimneys, you have soot, you have other issues like that, and you don't have cars. So you have a lot of horses, and the city is drowning in horse manure and urine. And so, of course, people mm -hmm. cannot invest in a modern sewage system. So the quality of uh, water in Lake Ontario and the streams around the city is really horrible by today's standard. It's even worse than what you would observe in uh, developing uh, countries to, today. I mean, air quality in Toronto, I mean, we don't have really good numbers, but we can approximate. And uh, I have no doubt that air quality in Toronto in 1900 was worse than it is in Beijing today. But what happens again in the meantime? Well, 
population grows by 10, people are a lot wealthier than in the past, and yet our environment is cleaner because, well, we've switched to natural gas, we've switched to hydroelectricity, uh, we can afford to build nuclear. a sewage treatment plant, <laughs> we can invest in nuclear. A car doesn't get sick, it does not urinate, it does not defecate. It doesn't attract flies, yes. right? So it avoids a lot of these, uh, let's say, quote-unquote, uh, insect-borne, well, plagues, insect-borne diseases, diseases, and also uh, there, there are fewer ways for rats, vectors of illness to to move and snack on um, you know various uh, diseased um, organisms and things like that and so. what we argue is that this improvement in environmental quality was conditional upon mm -hmm. a growing population which made possible the development of new technologies and uh, less environmentally or um... and this is key because that means uh, if, if with more people there was more scope for division of labor and for the ability for people to specialize at something that they were truly mind-blowingly good at so that they could do this really well and others could buy it and and then this way only the people who are, the people who are really good at something actually get to do it and everybody gets to do something productive and trade with everybody else right yes. you can't do that in a in a community that's uh, devoted to subsistence agriculture and at the same same time, there is a, there are a little caveat here. Uh, our air is not cleaner because we've shipped our dirty industry to less advanced yeah. economies. If nothing else, uh, we produce more than in the past. We just uh, employ a lot less people and producing stuff than we did in the past, but we do produce more. And again, as uh, less advanced economies develop and benefit from technology transfers from less advanced economies, they will go, will go through the same stages. The problem we have in China right now is that, of course, it's a communist dictatorship. So uh, you know, all sorts of bad things will happen. They will uh, uh, they will not necessarily enforce the law against the polluters or, you know, there's a lot of corruption going on. I would argue that the pollution problem in China is, based war, is made worse because of their bad institutions. But I'm still confident that over time, as uh, you have more of a middle class, as people get, uh, get more of a say, you will have reaction against pollutions. And environmental problems are, in the end, rich people's problem. You know, when uh, you don't know where your next meal will come from, you don't really worry about the sewage. You know, you mm -hmm. need a certain level of, uh, st you need a certain standard of living before you begin to worry about, let's call them secondary environmental problems. But what we've seen historically, as economies develop, uh, they become uh, more populated, but also environmentally cleaner. <laughs> And I think that that level is somewhere between three and four thousand yeah. dollars a year in in uh, I guess in in earnings uh, per person. So we're not talking about um, huge amounts of of wealth. We're not talking about somebody having a let's say a minimum wage job in an advanced economy. We're talking about mere thousands per per year. Uh, per person um, in order to be able to start seeing serious amelioration of, of, of every environmental um, indicator around. So so again, we're talking about us reaching that level in more and more countries. Um, and that's um, that's well uh, illustrated by people like Steven Pinker and by the Roslings, uh, Hans Rosling's posthumous book uh, written with mm -hmm. uh, his daughter and, and I think her husband. Um, and the interesting thing that um, happened to uh, to the Roslings um, after the book uh, came out and it was reviewed. Was one of the reviewers was absolutely flabbergasted at, at Rosling's reply when he was asked um, what he believes about population and overpopulation. And Rosling actually said this is this was an interview uh, he did shortly before he died when um, he was still writing the book. Uh, uh, the interviewer asked him what um, well, what do you think about overpopulation? He says that is not a problem. Population and reproduction should be a personal choice. 
people will choose according to what's happening in their lives, whether whether they're economically and, and uh, socially mm-hmm. able to uh, to have another child. And this answer, this answer, this idea of of this the, the voluntary choice to reproduce, so shocked the interviewer that that in all this people like Rosalind. And uh, people like uh, Pinker and, and many, many others, I mean, even, even if you go back to the writings of Bjorn Lomborg, what they do see is this rising trajectory for improvement. And that, to many of them, not just to us, shows that uh, these population decisions are, again, going to shift towards uh, more voluntary economic choices and, and again social choices and when it comes to social choices too i find it interesting pair that you did say before that that uh pollution and damage to the planet that's ultimately you said like it, it's a rich or wealthy people's nations ultimately a problem this is when people can start worrying about these things i was going to say that it is interesting to note that most people's preferences are towards non-pollution now people are making more conscious choices when they do have uh the income and the lifestyle that enables them to be concerned about these things uh, most people i I think you could say if you, if you talk to them about would they rather purchase a product that that damages the planet or not that they, they would choose the the not part so i found it very interesting that, that you mentioned that as well yeah although unfortunately there's a lot of misinformation about the real problems that we should tackle but that's for another day yeah exactly well we'll have you guys back on that one <laughs> thanks and if i can pitch uh, pierre's other work another thing he mentioned uh, today in the book as well is that uh pollution well what we see is pollution can be uh, a treasure as well uh people over over the centuries and especially in the last several decades have made fantastically successful businesses out of reclaiming various uh, pollutants that were seen as absolutely deadly at, at, at certain times. Uh, that applies to both fossil fuels and a variety of other resources. So again, pollution, just as resources, uh, can be well relative. So you were both ultimately saying that more economic activity uh, ends up actually reducing the the environmental impact. That that's what we we just explored, and that might be hard for people to, to wrap their heads around, right? Because they think if they see pollution. Uh, uh, that's re- the result of some activity. If you m- have more activity, then there's more pollution. Well, the, the problem that people have, especially when they look at it historically, is that they see a few pictures of, let's say, how polluted the environment was in uh, Victorian England, but they don't see the movie. And by the movie, I mean is that, yes, at first, you know, some industry comes along and there's a lot of sulfur going up through the smokestack. But then somebody comes along and says, well, sulfur, well, we can turn that into sulfuric acid. It's used in a lot of industries. And so let's find a way to capture it and turn it into a a valuable product. A lot of things were dumped into the rivers. Well, some people were like, "Okay, well, we can actually create dyes out of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a lot of agricultural uh, waste in the past uh, that could be turned eventually into, you know, food for animals or fertilizer after a little treatment. And so, uh, yeah, we mentioned uh, I've been working on that for a few decades, but we have a few pages on how these things spontaneously happen in market economies. Because ultimately, uh, manufacturers buy their resources. Nobody gives them stuff for free. And it's always in their interest to try to extract as much value out of what they buy uh, rather than just release it in the environment. But ultimately, what people don't understand is that it's not so much the amount of stuff that you handle, it's how you handle it. Mm -hmm. So um, in the 20th century, again, our younger listeners might not understand that, what you observed in the United States is that the... uh, People were becoming wealthier and the environment was becoming cleaner. Whereas in the Soviet Union, under central planning, people were actually getting poorer and the environment was getting worse. Mm -hmm. And so it's ultimately not your level of wealth. It's how much 
or how little you release stuff in the environment uh, that really matters, which would probably get us to CO2 emissions or greenhouse well, gas yes. emissions. Well, yeah, so, so how much you release, and also do you allow people to do something with it, right? Yes. Do they have a choice to turn it into something? Or do they have an incentive? Absolutely, to... absolutely, and the incentives are key. Uh, we wrote a paper about uh, uh, turning cotton seeds uh, from an absolute menace uh, environmental menace into uh, a host of byproducts. So just to pitch another thing. Yes. When we began this section of the conversation, we were ultimately talking about what the, what the solution is. And and if I'm hearing you guys correctly, the, the solution is ultimately uh, in, a, in a market-based economy to let that work so people discover the incentives and work through the incentives that essentially make them produce and create more uh, efficient and more planet-friendly technologies. Is that a fair way, way to round it off, or is that too much yes. of a simplification? Yes, what we argue is that ultimately market economies uh, hate waste, and pollution is ultimately waste. And so what happens over time is that the best firms are those that create the most value out of their inputs, and the most wasteful are the ones that are least able to create value out of their inputs. In a market economy, the less efficient firms go out of business, the more creative, the more efficient firms grow and prosper. And so over time, you create more wealth while releasing less stuff in the environment. And all you need for that is the profit motive and also holding people responsible for what they emit in the environment. So either through property rights or other mechanism. But again, this might be for another show. Mm-hmm. So, so it's important to remember that that pollution and harm to the planet is, is not just a, it's not linear. It's not just a straight line. It's, it's often interrupted by technological progress. Exactly. Yeah, so so so, res- so resource substitution, mm-hmm. so replacing coal with natural gas, hydroelectricity, and nuclear, for example, mm-hmm. or else if you look at the history of the petroleum industry, at first the only valuable fraction of the petroleum barrel was the one that was used to produce kerosene uh, to so as a substitute for whale oil. But then uh, what happened at first is that people were releasing gasoline into streams because they didn't know what to do with it. And then they realized, oh, my God, we can use gasoline to power internal combustion engines. And so suddenly you have a technology, the car, which no matter how imperfect it was a century ago, was still better than horses that needed to be fed, that needed to be taken care of when they were sick, that would defecate and again urinate and stuff like that. So uh, what we argue in the book is that uh, in market economies, um, Economic development, even though it's not necessarily what engineers or creative business people have in mind, tends to be greener over time because people tend to create lesser problems than those that existed before they came along. So what really motivates every creative engineer or technician is to solve, is to fix problems. You know, is there a way to make this better? Is this is there a way to make things less useful? Can there be a, a business person will say, how can I create value out of that? And spontaneously, what happens is an economic system in which inputs are increasingly confined to the economic sphere and less and less released into the environment. The one exception is uh, carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. as a result of burning uh, fossil fuels. So, uh, Pierre and Joanna, we've we've talked about a lot here. I'd like to close off the conversation, bring it full circle and, and try and pu- and try and put a finer point on all the things we've been talking about today. And I'd like I'd like each of you to take a, tur- a turn at this. So what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you guys here on whether or not population increase hurts the planet? If someone was to listen to a snippet of this conversation, what would each of you like to take away from it? Well, uh, we've had this debate for 200 years. For 200 years, the uh, 
optimist, people who believe in uh, human brains and human hands and market economies, for 200 years, optimists have been right. And we see no indication that things are getting worse. Uh, what we hear these days are uh, computer model uh, scenarios of doom, but the actual evidence shows that humanity has been good at creating lesser problems than those that existed before. Joanna? That's, that's an absolutely great uh, beginning. I would say that um, the main lesson um, is not to despair because um, humanity, it's, humanity has been actually looking at these problems for more than 200 years. These problems, the problems of the two discourses, the pessimists seeing doom in almost every new development and the optimists rallying and thinking we can get past it are as old as civilization. They go back to Aristotle, they go back to medieval think thinkers. We found an Islamic thinker in the 11th century who was a pessimist. So this is not just us. It's, we've always had this. Some of that, some of those views go back to how we're wired. If you look at what psychologists and anthropologists have been writing about people, we have a stone age brain. We tend to have this flight, a fight or flight response to a lot of problems. The key is not to give in, not to give in to the superficial evidence to actually analyze problems deeply and allow institutions that have been proven to um, allow uh, humans to develop past, let's say, uh, the hunter-gatherer and grazing stage to, to, to reign. I think that is uh, that is a big lesson. Yeah, so don't panic, kids. There will still be a planet in 12 years from now. And don't believe yes. that you should not have children because we're imposing mm -hmm. a... Uh, unseeming burden on the planet. Yes. People were saying that 20 years ago, people were saying that 40 years ago, people were saying that 100 years ago, people were saying that 200 years ago. Heck, you could even see the whole uh, flood episode in the Bible mm -hmm. as God being angry at humans. Yes. The Epic of Gilgamesh yes. as well. So the, this is the narrative of perdition and annihilation is as old as humanity. But along with that is the Promethean myth, which is actually our beautiful reality. That's that is the truth. People are able, of uh, people are able to turn their minds, their brains, their their um, inventiveness to uh, truly benefit themselves and the planet. And the point is, as soon as they've benefited benefited themselves and their closest environment, they're already working to benefit towards benefiting the planet. That's the that's the implied. Um, outcome of, of what they're doing. Things will be mm -hmm. fine if we don't turn our back on technological advances yeah. and our belief mm -hmm. in progress. Great. I, I think that is an excellent place to end it. Pierre and Joanna, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank, thank you, you, Alex. It was a pleasure. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine El Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. 